Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. If you've been on a team for very long, you probably know who the best developers are on your team. While you probably also understand that this takes years of diligent work, there are things you can start doing today that will drastically improve the way you look to management and to your team. In this episode, we're going to discuss some easy things you can start doing today to become a better developer. These ideas can be implemented with no prior experience, and you can do them starting on the first day of your very first job. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, as you know, we were talking before we actually got on to record, I noticed something the other day when I was playing Skyrim in Russian, and that was that I was understanding what the people were saying without translating it, which I thought was really cool. And that's a you know kind of a milestone for me. And I also this uh, this coming Sunday will be one year of practicing every single day in fluent forever, and I haven't missed a day. That's awesome. Yeah, so that's, you know, I've made it a habit. That's like right before I go to sleep, I practice. Mm-hmm. And so I've slept every night. So it's pretty easy to, like, you know, you do get the habit <laughs> in, locked in early on, and then it's not a real big deal to do something like that. Um, so I just think that's really cool. It's like a, it's a bit of a personal milestone for me. How about you? Well, I am sore. We took the dogs hiking yesterday, and it was hot. Like, we, we went in the evening after I got off work, when it was only 95 degrees. 97, but yeah, close. <laughs> okay. But uh, then we decided to uh, to kind of take a detour because it was so dry, you could walk on the riverbed. And so we're like, oh, hey, we'll get on the riverbed at this point in the trail. And then the up ahead a little bit, it comes out on the river or, you know, to it. So we'll just walk up to there. Yeah, we got to a point where we couldn't go forward anymore because there was water. And so... We had to turn around and head back, and then I thought, well, hey, I think the trail is just right over this this little mound here. Let me just climb up here and climb it up, and I start to slip. I reach back to grab the tree behind me, and it had a vine around it with thorns, and I just jammed one right into my finger. Oh, yeah. Blood was all over the tree, all over my shorts. It was a mess. So you should have done that on the way down, and then you could have followed it back. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> it would have been useful then. <laughs> well, we we knew how to get back. We were trying to get to it, the next entrance little area there, and it just couldn't. We like it was just blocked. We couldn't get to it. So, uh, also, I know way more about teacher licensure than I ever wanted to know. Amanda aced her praxis exam for teaching high school English. But getting her license updated because she's licensed for elementary has just been a pain. And the problem is she can't find a straight answer on any website. And then like the state office that does that is closed until August because of all the COVID stuff. So it's just been crazy. In good news, she got a teaching offer to teach at high school. And the principal is really great. One of her uh, teacher friends knows him. It was like, this would be really great place for you to work and he is really working with her on this whole licensure thing so that's cool last night we tried to watch psych after hiking like the psych 2 movie that just came out on the new peacock channel from nbc yeah we tried 
for like two, three hours. Doesn't like it doesn't work on Fire Stick and it doesn't work with uh casting apps from my phone. So like I could watch it on the phone, but I can't cast to my TV. Like I can cast other things, but that app doesn't work. Like it's just they released too soon, to be honest with you. In better news, found a new brewery here in Murfreesboro. Uh, well, not exactly new. They took over the building where the Green Dragon pub used to be. Uh, it's called Panther Creek Brews. And um, honestly, they have some of the best craft beer in Murfreesboro. I don't know if they're distributing yet, but you should definitely check it out. That said, uh, craft beer costs money to make. And uh, you got to have some money to make some money. So take your financial confidence to the next level. Lucas Casares is a fee-only certified financial planner and financial coach serving tech professionals with his company, Level Up Financial Planning, virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Level Up Financial Planning changes the financial planning game by empowering you to live your best life, which is uh, part of our motto, too. Regardless of whether you are just starting up and need to build your financial foundation or are mid-career and navigating complex and sometimes competing financial goals. Best of all, Lucas and Level Up Financial Planning is a fiduciary for clients. And what this means is, is he is required to act in his client's best interest, not his own. So he's not a sales guy. You know, you pay as you get value and you stop paying when you're not getting value. Yeah, so you can find some fun, free resources and learn more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. While technical skills are always useful, even the most talented developer will fail to be noticed and appropriately compensated by management if they aren't effective in their work. If you've been around a while, you've probably noticed that not all of the most skilled developers are recognized for the quality of their work with many of them languishing for years in senior developer roles or team lead roles or even just mid-level. Worse still, you've probably seen developers whose skills and knowledge were mediocre at best who were promoted over and over again. While it's a common refrain in this industry that good development practices aren't respected, and there are loads of evidence for this. We're looking at you, Windows. I'm going to poke them about that every time I get a chance. Yeah, (laughs) that's not the entire picture. Uh, The real deal here is that good development practices are only going to be rewarded if they actually produce value. Uh, Also, there are plenty of good practices that a developer should engage in that have little to do with code and have everything to do with actually providing value to the people who are signing your paycheck. If you want to be a more effective developer and to have that be adequately recognized by management, you have to change your patterns of behavior so that your technical skills are actually visible and acknowledged. For your skills to really shine through, you have to get rid of other problems that can make you look bad in spite of your, air quotes, mad technical skills. Further, if you follow these practices, you'll often find that they have a side effect of forcing your technical skills to improve as well. So with that, let's uh, get started. But before we get started, I just want to tell y'all, because if you go to the website, you will see this. But uh, in his quotes for mad technical skills, 
Will spelled skills with a Z. Darn right. And it should be. I just I just want to point that out to the listeners who are not going to the website to see this. You guys check it out. It's hilarious because Will did it. I should have done like extreme <laughs> technical skills and just left off the leading E too. You know, just yes, like get yes, that early two thousands vibe going. Yeah. Late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. It's like it's like it's a pile of crap, but it's an extreme pile of crap, and they left off the E, so obviously it's useful. It's not an extreme, it's an X tree. It's an X tree, which is like a monotreme, <laughs> but not as cool in the zoo. Sorry. Hey, I threw a platypus joke in. You don't get those very often. <laughs> so speaking of things that you should consider, <laughs> consider second order effects of the stuff that you're doing. Every action you take is going to have a reaction, and most non-actions do as well. A lot of problems come from failing to anticipate second-order and following effects. For instance, adding an online store to your application also implies additional regulatory and security compliance costs. If you haven't thought about that when your company is going to go do this, you probably should be the one bringing that up. Yeah, I mean, I've I've run into a lot of this as I've taken over. Uh, stuff that uh, was written by the other junior developer when I was a junior developer um, who came straight from school. They don't really teach this kind of stuff at school. It's more of an on-the-job learning thing. It's hard to teach. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. It can yeah. be learned. It can't be taught. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And the thing is, second-order effects aren't all negative. When I read that line, my first thought was object-oriented programming and using side effects to actually get stuff done. Like I try not to do that because I prefer like writing functional style, but every now and then you have to use side effects because that's the only way to get done what you want to get done. And so like when I read that, I was like, Oh, it's like side effects in object-oriented code. Yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. Sometimes they create opportunity, uh, for instance, uh, Will was talking about the online store might provide opportunity for further product customization for your buyers. Right. So, for instance, you're like, hey, I'm going to set up an online store. And you're like, wait, but the machines that make the stuff can make them all different, right? So, what if we tie that together? We let the customers pick what they want and it's automated. We can bump up our oh, sales yeah. volume and it's way, way better than just making, you know, 500 red hats you know if they could all be you know custom embroidered or something right like i i can't say what it is yet but will and i have some really cool stuff that is a second order effect of switching up the way we uh, are handling our calls when we record uh that is actually going to benefit you guys um it's coming up well, let me see when this episode is coming out so yeah, we will be announcing it in about three or four weeks from when this episode comes out. So yeah, it's it's coming up soon for you guys. And so just just a little heads up, we got some really cool stuff coming very soon that is literally a second order effect. Like we had not even thought about or planned on doing this. Yeah, but this is the way we plan. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Because like we'll we'll do something actually to get rid of a problem. And then we go, well, okay, we changed this. What opportunities are we creating? What threats are we creating? You know, are we changing our yeah. strengths and our weaknesses? It's, it's almost like a SWOT analysis, but we don't call it that. Mm -hmm. But 
consideration of second order effects will help you write better code in anticipation of likely business needs. And asking questions about second order effects will help you build your network outside your department because now you're talking to the people who are making bigger decisions. Uh, This is really helpful for a lot of the other things we're going to start suggesting in this episode. I do want to, you know, as an aside, point out here that, you know, these are all things that you can start doing right now. None of these take any technical, you know, work. Like you can start doing it today. Um, And this is definitely one of the biggest ones is the second order effects. Oh, yeah. It, it makes a huge difference if you just start looking at that because when we started doing that with the podcast, we started recognizing all sorts of things we could be doing that improved our process. So the, the next one that you can start right now with is optimize for team efficiency and be vocal about it. <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah, uh, you know, good developers will fix their own processes for better efficiency, right? Like that's, that's part of being an adult. Mm-hmm. But great developers figure out how to do the same for their team yeah. and how to implement it. You should not be competing with your teammates. If you are, it's a very bad sign. Instead, if you're helping your team be more effective as a unit, uh, your contributions will, should still be noticed and you'll create more value. Yeah, while you might not have the leverage to actually make your team use better processes, you can still lead them to implementing better processes by showing how those processes make things easier for them. And you do that by showing how it makes it easier for you. Yeah. You know, for anything that you can, uh, you can change. So recently, one of my tasks at work, you know, we have a thing called goal week or team week. I forget. They, they use different terms, but basically we get a week once a quarter, you know, once a, every six months, it's, it varies. But what you get to do during goal week is the team picks out things to work on. We work on them all week and it's like quality of life improvements. Mine this last time was getting it where we could run the QA automated tests that normally run on a Mac to run on Windows so we could test our own stuff locally as we're developing with the same suite of tests that QA is using. And so, you know, I spent a bit of time doing this. It actually only took about two days and then getting all the docs together and and making sure that the onboarding for that was correct took the rest of the time. Um, But it was huge. And the reason it was huge is because I was able to speed up a group of, I think, 14 active web developers. Oh, wow. Yeah. With just a few days of work. That's really funny because I just did something similar on a smaller scale than that. But I took a webinar on Postman. Yeah. I just went through a course on it. Yeah. And our lead QA wanted to go, but she couldn't get the approval to do a one hour webinar. Which is why you don't ask. But (laughs) (laughs) right. So but it was middle of the day. So what I did for her was I set up a team for one of the projects I was I'm working on that is literally just an API. And I wanted her to go through this because I had to train her on Postman to begin with for this project. And they let her do that because it was like part of working on the project. So what I did for her was I just like, I got the recording of the video of the webinar and I sent it to her so she could watch on her own time. 
But then I used the information and I set up a team and I was like, hey, so here's how we're going to test this. And I can, like, as a developer, I can put in all the things that, like, the tester API key and stuff like that so that you don't have to, like, worry about things like that. And you can just focus on the actual testing of the application. So, like, I, I got it set up for her, and then I had, I got on a call with her and walked her through how to use it. So she got the effect of, hey, here's the things that BJ got out of this webinar. <laughs> yeah, and it helped her. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, it's, it, it, it I, I told her, I'm like, hey, I'm going get to get in touch with your director and my director and be like, hey, we need to be using this tool. It will save us a lot of time. Yeah, the, the course I went through on Postman made me think the same thing. Um, we're actually using Cypress mm-hmm. uh, for our automated tests. But I was actually kind of I had the the postman course playing in the background while I was doing all the Cypress stuff, and so I got like I got a double whammy of of QA goodness yeah. in there. Um, yeah. but it makes a difference if you can you can make something like this happen, and you'd be surprised at the leverage points that you have, especially junior devs. Junior devs can get away with a lot of stuff mm-hmm. that senior devs can't because they go, "Oh, hey, I was playing with this thing," and you get a senior dev is interested, you fix a major problem. All of a sudden, you got all this visibility. I mean, it. it you just got to think about how your leverage works in the system that you're in, and and actually oh, yeah. use it. That's why we're using the logging system that I picked because I just put it into my app to prove that it would work. And management was like, "Wow, you really you're really fast at debugging and figuring out what's wrong with things." And I'm like, "Yeah, it's because of this logging system that I put in that didn't take me, you know." Maybe an hour to set up. That was the thing with a delegate, <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the the next thing that you can start doing right away is learn how the money comes into your business. A lot of developers think they can just come into the office, write some code, be done with it. However, the reality is that the value of your code is always based on how that code impacts the flow of money into your organization. Yeah, I mean, code is a multiplier. Do you know what happens when you multiply zero by anything? Nothing. Well, it's a lot better than when you divide it by zero. Yeah. Oh, hey, something (laughs) happens when you do that, though. (laughs) I can tell you. Learning how the money comes in will also help you position yourself within the organization. So when you start thinking about how money flows through a business or through a governmental organization, it's easier to position yourself in general to be closer to the money coming in than to the money going out. So if you're if you're in a cost center versus a revenue center, like the revenue center is where you want to be. That's a safer place, yeah. especially as the economy goes down the toilet um, right now, it's circling the drain. It hasn't gone down, but it will. Successful companies try to optimize by increasing the amount of money that's coming in and decreasing the amount of money going out. I mean, just last week, we had an episode on how you think about your money. Well, your company has a team of people thinking about their money. And they've got training. Yeah. And they're probably good at it. Yeah. Yeah. If not, you don't really have to worry about this because you'll be dealing with a different set of them pretty soon. (laughs) Um, But, you know, hopefully they are good at it. And 
you know, the thing is, is this process is always going on, but when you have an economic situation like what we've got right now, it's forefront. Being in a revenue center is safer than being in a cost center. It also gives you more leverage. So like the people that are cost center people get cut. Well, the revenue center people a lot of times don't get cut or they're in a position to go, hey, we could do this and make more money. Mm-hmm. And you have their attention now because you know what they're focused on. Yeah. So it's a way better position to be in. And also, if you're doing the first suggestion, which is considering the second order effects, you'll get more attention increasing revenue than you will for decreasing costs. Yeah, at least under normal circumstances. Now, do bear in mind that if you work in one organization, that organization's cost center is somebody else's revenue center. It's true. So be aware of that. Sometimes um, you know, you can make something cheaper for a client and get more money in by that. So those those two things don't necessarily collide if you if you think about how the money is flowing through the entire system versus just your business. But um, mm-hmm. it's it's important to pay attention to this. It's stuff. complicated, but start off like y- the place to start is understanding how it's coming in and going out of your business. Right. And then you consider second order effects, which oddly, somebody may have given that advice recently. <laughs> um, next, determine values based on behavior rather than statements. This reminds me of a, uh, of a recent April 1st episode. Uh, I think that was the uh, fifth rule, isn't it? Mind what people do, not what so, they yeah. say for deeds betray a lie. Yeah. I don't have those memorized or anything. Yeah. <laughs> when when your manager says that they value code quality over the speed of delivery, does their behavior match that assertion? If not, you should optimize your behavior based on what their behavior implies, not based on what they say. I've worked for companies that were like, oh, we don't want bugs. We don't want crappy code going out. And they were constantly rushing the developers mm-hmm. and hacking things. Well, like they didn't care about code quality. I mean, they said they did. They would They would love to have code quality if they could get speed of delivery, but they're not going to compromise speed of delivery for code quality. So you shift your behavior. Oh, yeah. I, I have actually had those conversations where I, I have said, all right, well, which do you want? Because you can't have all of it. Right. Like, you know, do you want me to cut corners? And I have actually gotten to the point now where when I'm presented with a, a big thing that needs to be done, I will I will start with the here's the best option. It's going to take the most time, but here's why we want to do it this way. And then I will present the other options of like, all right, here's the fast way of doing it, but here's the cost for that fast way. Yeah. The other thing you can do is when you're suggesting something, the way you characterize it has to shift, right? So if it's like, hey, look, they want speed of delivery and I want code quality. Well, I, I don't want to go out there and say, well, you know, continuous, you know, testing, you know, of every, you know, every pull request when it, you know, gets merged, it gets automated, automatically tested. I don't sell the code quality thing. I sell the speed of delivery because that's what they actually value. That's what they're anxious about. People in a corporate environment will Mm -hmm. say that they prioritize things that sound nice um, rather than what they actually prioritize. You can see this with a lot of corporate statements on Twitter. You're going to see this all the time with managers who claim to you know, really like the code quality thing, but they push development, you know, into making nasty hacks and then they blame development for the hack later. Behavior is a second order effect of a person's values. When somebody has a lot of influence over your future quality of life, 
You need to optimize your behavior so that it meets the person's actual values rather than the ones that they're verbal about. Yeah. Um, Also, be aware that the values of the group are not the sum of the values of the individuals in that group. Yeah, unless none of the individuals ever think at all. So the fifth one, this is something I actually test for um, if I am in a position to interview developers. I want to see that you can say, I don't know. Um, Pretending that you know something when you don't is a short-term optimization. It's also a lie, but I mean, really, the the issue with a lot of lies is that the intent of them is to optimize for the short-term rather than over the long-term. That's how people get into that situation. While you can certainly grow into a position, being overly optimistic about your ability to do so is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Also, if you regularly imply that you know things when you don't, people begin to actively distrust anything you say or anything you claim to know. Like, even if you are a- an expert in something, you know. You could be mad and they would start yeah. to question your knowledge of C sharp yeah. net if you keep doing this. People are inclined to trust people with known flaws and weak spots to a greater degree than they trust somebody whose weak spots and flaws are unknown. It's kind of the better the devil you know than the one that you have to worry about. Mm-hmm. Now, so I actually have a story about this. I had a coworker who was actually pretty knowledgeable about a lot of tech stuff. He was sharp. You know, you could ask him questions about certain things and get really, really good answers. The problem was, is when he didn't know something, he talked out his backside. That's uh, the best way to put it. He would make statements about history that were like wildly off or things about, you know, geography that were wildly off. And you questioned him on it and he would double down on the, on the crap. And as a result, he lost the trust of management. And I don't want to get, too deep into some of the stuff he was saying, but you know, he was, I think some stuff came up about the, um, like the religious practices of the Sioux Indians, right. At, you know, at lunch one day, and this guy started describing stuff that was going on on a different continent, you know, South America, not North America. And then when questioned about it, he doubled down on it. And so we're like, dude, you're off by a continent. And, and he continued to double down and try to maintain his position until somebody yeah. actually sent him a Wikipedia article going, no, dude, you're full of crap. Like, you don't want to be that, that guy. Um, so being able to say, I don't know, is the, the relief mm-hmm. valve to avoid having that problem. Also, it's, it's a respect thing, too. Yeah, it really is. Because people, you know, like, if they catch you lying or misrepresenting stuff, they never trust you again. Yeah, no, it's, it's different if you are like you are misinformed or like you know you you can be wrong and that's different yeah. but if you literally don't know and the problem is sometimes you can be second order ignorant yeah and not know like you think you know what you're talking about and you really don't well i mean i worked with a guy who was certain once that um you could optimize c sharp code better than you could optimize delphi code <laughs> And I'm sitting here listening to this conversation and I'm like, okay, in Delphi, I can say that this parameter goes in this CPU register. In C sharp, I can say this is a parameter. 
full stop. Like the ability to optimize is definitely better with Delphi. Now it's painful um, in a lot of cases, yeah. but like you just can't make the statement that he was making. Um, well, optimization in general is painful. Let's just oh, be yeah. honest. You know, you you only do it because you know you need to. Yeah, because you want to brag about it later. <laughs> yeah, well. largely. So the the next thing that you can do right now is build systems rather than actions. Rather than trying to remember every single action you need to complete, focus on building workflows and processes for yourself so that you don't have to remember things. Yeah, it's really easy to believe that you can remember everything that you have to do, but it doesn't take a whole lot of disruption to completely forget and drop the ball in a very bad, very visible way. You need to build mm-hmm. systems that are resilient to changes in your environment, emotional state, schedule, that sort of stuff, so that you can get things done that you're supposed to do. Um, we've done this with the podcast, right? Like we have a checklist of stuff that, you know, initially we started doing every time. Now we don't really have to think about it. We do all the things and we've eliminated a lot of those things too, because we set our systems up where that's not a problem, except for today. Today's new box, you know, there are a lot of ways to achieve this. Um, we'll mention checklists. You could do automation, uh, habit construction. We've had episodes about how to form good habits. Honestly, you're going to use a mix of these. Uh, but you'll need to be actively making sure you're always improving in this area. This is one of those areas that you're you're constantly reevaluating. It's like like your goals. When we've talked about goals in the past, we talk about setting like evaluating them periodically and throughout time. You're going to have to evaluate these as you go along. Yeah, it's also a, a backdoor way of improving team processes. Um, you know, try mm-hmm. something new out on yourself and then propose it to the team after it works for you. Um, cause a lot of people are still in that competitive mindset. And so if you're doing something that helps you and you're offering that to the team, they're going to take you up on it because they don't want to be outcompeted by you, even though you shouldn't be in competition. Mm-hmm. A lot of people feel that way. So go ahead and use that. It's a thing. It's a good point. And speaking of subtly manipulative things that really aren't manipulative, they're just common sense, um, you should be cultivating an Intel network. And what I mean by that is not, you know, Intel versus AMD. Because <laughs> I always have to say, you always have to say that with tech. It's like, understand what's going on around you. If your only friends at work are other developers or developer adjacent people, you're doing it wrong. Uh, not only are you missing out on a larger perspective about why you're building the system that you're building, but you're essentially building a very dangerous bubble to live mm-hmm. in that's going to get popped. Yeah. Organizational silos develop naturally as the organization grows, and it's normal. It's a normal optimization. However, they tend to persist longer than they're useful, and you want to break outside of your silo. It, this can be difficult for the more introverted in the crowd. I, I know for me, it's not a problem. I... It's more of a problem now because I'm just not in the office ever, but I have made friends all over uh, the office in various roles and stuff just because I like to go talk to people and invite them out to lunch with the group and stuff like that. I actually made made one friend who ended up coming to Developer Launchpad and 
had already decided she wanted to learn software development, ended up going to school for it, and is now a software developer. <laughs> nice. I, I will say, as far as the introverted developers, um, the way you fix this is you go talk to the accounting people, right? Like, they're very much like you. You will be shocked how much accountants are kind of in the same headspace. They're not really the sort that, that are like people, people. No, that's a good place to start. If you if you can't do this with the salespeople because you're you know intimidated, possibly righteously, the accounting folks that's the ones you go talk to because that's what I did, um, and it it helped me back in the day. Now another thing too is if you are working in the public sector or you're building something uh, internal for a particular department, it's very useful to have someone uh, who you can talk with in that department for clarification. Now you can do this through product owners and project managers, and it's entirely possible that those people are not the people using your software day to day. Oh my goodness. Let me tell you guys, we, we had this, uh, this, the biggest project I've worked on like all the way through, I've worked on a lot of big stuff here and there, but this is the biggest one I worked on all the way through. And we had these great guys for, for product owners, really nice, really knowledgeable for their area, but they didn't know the other areas that were going to be using it um, as well. And so we are maybe two or three months from completing what we thought was the project when they brought someone else on who had a better understanding of more overall usage to do to help with the user testing and he ended up becoming the primary product owner and we had to extend the project out because we weren't meeting the needs of the organization we were meeting the needs of that particular part of the organization and it was through no fault of their own don't get me wrong these guys weren't weren't bad it's just they literally didn't know and so at having that extra information really helped us a lot because we would have been like here you go, moved on to something else. And they're like, we can't right. use this. So, yeah. Yeah. It can also help the people on the other side. A lot of times they have really useful ideas for, you know, how something should work and you, you don't necessarily. And so you, you go, Hey, what's the thought process here? Like what's, what's the slowest part of the process for you? Because it might be their boss's boss's boss that you're yep. interacting with. And so if you find a way to speed stuff up, when you demo the software, you go through it. And if those people are in the audience, you show the thing. Otherwise, you don't. And you just kind of let word of mouth get it around. And you can really help them out mm-hmm. a lot. And you know it will get you noticed. The other thing it will do is it will actually make the organization better, which eventually comes back to you. The next is something that we harp on a lot. We've had several episodes about it. And something you can do right now. That is correct your schedule. Figure out when you are most productive doing certain tasks and try to do them then. Avoid doing tasks during times that aren't optimal. Uh, I mean, I think I've talked about it recently. I made a change in my schedule because I kept trying to get up an hour early. I'm not a morning person, but I'm still getting up pretty early already. Uh, so that I could get stuff done before people started coming in and um, asking me for things. Well, 
I was trying to get up an hour early to get some stuff done in my personal life before I started work. And I just was failing miserably at it because I just could not get myself out of bed an hour earlier. And I realized, Hey, that time that I had like starting my day early wasn't being useful because I'd start my day and 10, 15 minutes, I'd be getting a call. So why am I starting so early? I pushed that back an hour fix all those problems. It's weird how that like, um, like I haven't used an alarm clock to get up during the week uh, in two weeks, three weeks, three weeks since I've used an alarm clock. I still have to on the weekends because I have to get up earlier to go to church because I'm on the tech team and we have to get there early. But uh, yeah, during the week, I don't even use an alarm clock. Yeah. I mean, my thing is, is like I, I code best first thing in the morning and then there's a couple of other windows that are really good yeah. but the best is first thing in the morning so before six o'clock this morning i was writing code that uses a lot of .NET reflection mm. with all the nastiness that goes with that i was trying to change the way swagger dealt with some parts of our api um, before six o'clock this morning i was asleep yeah. just let you know but hey I, I you know i did it and it was fine now yeah. at two o'clock this afternoon not so much. I was in meetings. I was working on documentation. Uh, the trick is, is you take lower priority tasks that still have to be done and do those during the time of day when you're less effective at your high priority tasks. If you're a developer, your high priority tasks are probably development. Not necessarily because a lot of companies are kind of messed up, but theoretically, that's the way it, it works. This way, the work that's lower priority doesn't pile up, but you don't lose. Uh, productivity during your main, you know, best part of the day to the low priority junk. So I don't write documentation at six o'clock in the morning. See, that's when I would. Well, not at six o'clock in the morning, but I, I do. I set up things like I do reports and timesheets and stuff like that in the mornings because I like midday and afternoon are my best times. Yeah, those are my worst. Unfortunately, but that's also when a lot of people this. want to schedule meetings. Yeah, they don't like to do it in the morning. So it's it's really nice the way things worked out for me. Now, you should actively be protecting your best work time to the degree that you can, you know, with the amount of power that you actually have. Before getting upset at other people for messing up your best work time, make sure that you aren't doing that to yourself. Only after you get out of your own way should you start talking to management about getting others out of your way. So, for instance, if your best work is in the morning, but you're oversleeping on the regular, which a lot of people do, you've got to manage your time better. You got to go to bed earlier. You got to be able to get up. You know, you got to be functional mm-hmm. at the time that you do your best work. And then you work to protect it. Because if you're coming in late all the time and you go to management and you say, Hey, I need people to quit calling me in the afternoons, it's probably not going to go over well. But if you are already taking effort to do better and you can prove that you're doing better, it makes it easier to sell that. Oh, yeah. I recently worked on a holiday because I want to take some time off um, later this month. July 3rd? Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Uh, I got permission from management to do that because I was like, hey, I just got back from a vacation. I, I, I've i got this. I told them all the work I had to do at my manager's like, are you sure going to like, how much of that are you actually going to get done? I'm like, I'm trying to get all of it done because I won't be interrupted. And I did get all of it done, plus some. <laughs> yeah. Like, I got an entire week's worth of work done in one day, 
because I didn't have any interruptions. Yeah. And I know that sounds crazy to people that haven't done that, but it's nothing. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's fairly typical. Uh, once you protect your time well enough to actually be effective. Yeah. It, it's a whole nother world. Yeah. And like you're saying, fixing your schedule is going to require you to fix your sleep, manage your time better, um, and even manage your distractions better. Uh, for example, pushing, and this is the crazy thing, my productivity increased when I pushed the start of my day back an hour. Yep. Uh, because I'm not a morning person. I still, I'm still getting up at the exact same time, but I was trying to get up earlier so that I could kind of like sit and have a cup of coffee, have a little personal time, stuff like that to kind of ease into the morning. And I couldn't get myself to wake up earlier. Even if I went to bed earlier, I just was struggling. So I pushed my work back an hour and now I'm getting up or now I'm getting up at the same exact time and doing that. Then I start my day and I'm like ready to go. I'm not starting my work day sluggish and dragging. I'm starting my work day after having a cup of coffee, after having a little, you know, like wake up personal time and stuff like that. And I'm like ready to go. Yeah, it, it makes a difference. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be those kind of changes. Now, the, the next thing you can do, and this is something that is not easy, but it's very helpful, that is solicit feedback. You need to be tightening your feedback loops um, anytime you can. If you find out that you do things and don't hear whether they were good or bad for weeks or even months, you need to figure out how to get that much faster. Yeah. Uh, similarly with automated processes. So, you know, things like automated builds, deployments, tests, those kind of things. Uh, you're going to improve your productivity the earlier you find out about problems. This is why I run my automated tests locally at work is because I can, I can do that against my local environment, even though it's done in an automatic fashion on Azure. Uh, that takes time. Whereas if I run it locally, like I have a result five minutes later at the latest. Whereas if I push it out to Azure, it's an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tightening that feedback loop was a huge productivity boost. It also let me debug locally, but that's a whole other thing. That's a really tight feedback loop as well. That's true. That's very true. Don't misunderstand negative feedback as being feedback that makes you feel bad. Negative feedback in an engineering sense is nothing more than a course correction. The faster you can get this feedback and the more quickly you can respond to it as well, the less effort you waste going the wrong way. Yeah, be really careful about when and how you solicit feedback um, as well to make sure that you're getting good quality feedback. Uh, You can get a lot of really incorrect information if you're not paying attention to things like the boss's mood or to problems with an external system, right? Like if all your unit tests fail and some of them aren't really unit tests, they're integration tests, Mm-hmm. You may go, oh, I broke all the things, but it's like, oh, actually, the link to Amazon is down. Now, that happened to me this week. Um, yeah, yeah, well, I saw it. Yeah. <laughs> it sucked. Oh, uh, so like, I had a situation recently where I, I actually did solicit feedback from my boss. He had been out of town, and I had been working with. I had to work with a couple other people, and I don't know. They're the people who've been around for a long time like around the same department for a long time, decades. 
And they are the kind that, you know, it's like, hey, we're having a problem with this area. We need to make a change here. And it's like, oh, well, I noticed that, you know, the coloration on that page is slightly off from this other one. We should, we need to like have a meeting to talk about fixing all this stuff. And it's like, no, we have a functionality issue that is stopping us from working. We need to fix that first. Right. You know, and I spent an entire day wasted in an email, a couple of emails, and I copied my boss. Like I said, he was out of town. But when he got back, I used to ask him, I asked for feedback. I'm like, hey, how could I have handled that differently? Because you're really good at working with with them. Like, what what could I do? You know, what what could I do? Like, you know, what do you do that gets them to to focus on the actual issue and not on all these other like important but not relevant to the problem things? And uh, like we we talked about it back and forth and. He didn't say it, but the impression I got was um, having the phrase director in your title helps. Yeah. (laughs) Funny how that works. Yeah. Next, ask better questions. Instead of asking questions when you first run into a problem, uh, attempt to research the problem until you get stuck. Only when you don't think you can get an answer or when you've committed too much time to research do you interrupt someone else to ask? I remember when I first started learning, Will would ask me, he's like, well, what'd you find out about it before he would answer a question? He's like, what do you know about it? And at it, first, this would frustrate me. That's a mild word for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I, I started to get it. And now I'm on the other end of it. And I'm seeing it wasn't so much like he was trying to get me to do the research, which didn't take that much effort to get me to do because I like to know things, but he was also needed to know where I was and what I was talking about. Right. Because I would ask a generic question. I would ask a question that I thought was specific, but was really generic when you know a lot, but when you know a very little, it was a very specific question to me, but it wasn't to him. So Before you go talk to someone, definitely do your research. I know a lot of times I'll come to to Will these days if I have a question about something. I'm like, hey, could you give me a search term to use for this? Because I can't find anything or I'm having trouble figuring out what it is I need, like finding the information I need. Yeah, I mean, it's learning how to ask better questions. And I think we actually had an episode on this early on. So you can go back and listen to our audio quality improvements since then. Um, But this does a few things for you. Uh, First of all, it makes you capable of solving your own problems and causes you to get better over time. You're going to learn more going and looking and trying to find stuff out. There's a lot of like weird areas of .NET that I've used over the years because I have run into problems and tried to solve them for myself. And those have come up later and been useful. Um, So it helps you a lot. Second, it means that you're not constantly going to other people with dumb questions, which protects your reputation. You're going to them with smart questions a lot of times that they can't answer either. Yeah, that's true. That's a way better place to be, um, just to, as far as the way other people perceive your skill level. When asking a question after having done the research, don't forget to 
also ask about improving your process of researching things on your own. And and again, this kind of goes to what I was saying. Like I got to a point now where I ask Will not about things, but about how to search for them because I can find the information or I can understand the information if I can get to it. But a lot of times the search criteria I'm using or the way I'm looking for or the places are not right. Right. And it just, it, it helps, it helps you improve and it's in the best interest of the person that you're asking because now it takes burden off of them. It's like, Oh, I could just show him how to do this thing in Google. And the next 10 times something like this comes up, he's not in here. Yeah. And when he does come in here, it's a, it's a real problem and it's something I might learn something from too. So it's mm-hmm. valuable. So it's just a better way of, of refining when to ask questions and what you ask. And speaking of refinement, the final rule is to apply the Pareto rule or the Pareto principle. And that is that 20% of the work produces 80% of the results. And it's fractal, right? So yeah. 20% of the remaining 80% of the work produces 80% of the remaining 20% of results. Uh, nobody ever says this because that's sort of like I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. You know, from yeah. <laughs> Lord of the Rings, like people look at you funny and they can't quite do the math in their heads. So nobody ever says this part. Mm-hmm. But essentially the idea is there are diminishing returns to any set of improvements and you should be bearing those in mind. Yeah. If you don't know what that 20% of the work is that will produce 80% of the results you need, you either need to start asking questions to figure it out or start testing to figure it out. Yeah. And we've done this with the podcast, right? There's oh, yeah. there's stuff that we did early on. It was a lot of work and it didn't do anything for us. Mm-hmm. And we figured it out. And we stopped doing that. <laughs> yeah. And we, we continue to do this. Like we're, we're constantly making improvements and our goal is to give you guys the, the best possible content, the, the most, uh, I'll want to say the most for your money, but uh, you mean, you're not really paying for it (laughs) unless you want to, in which case we have a Patreon that you can uh, go find. Yeah, pretty easily. It, yeah, it's it's and, on the uh, website, and uh, yeah, yeah, feel free to. We'll we'll happily accept that. Uh, help us with the with the cost of this, but uh, yeah, uh, as developers, we have a bad tendency to over optimize systems where we work. Uh, while this can be very helpful building systems at scale, it doesn't work so well when you're trying to optimize the functioning of an individual or a team. Yeah. The, the thing is, is that process improvements also compound over time. So if you can make slight adjustments that have huge returns on investment, a lot of times what happens is this can free up resources that can be used to get it the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. if you make a, a gigantic improvement, the small improvements are cheap now because there's available time, there's available personnel, there's mm-hmm. available, you know, thinking you can actually reason about stuff that's going on, you know, whatever that the thing happens to be, it's easier to fix because you did the obvious quick fix to get it out of the way. Um, that doesn't mean you're sloppy. It just means going, hey, what's the actual big problem here versus how do I want to gold plate this over time? Yeah. Well, guys, if you want to be a better developer starting today, 
there are a lot of things you can do to see an immediate improvement in how other people perceive you. Not only does this make it more likely that you will get recognized for your development skills, but it makes you more useful in general. This usefulness will not only make it easier to make more money, but it will also put you in a much better position to improve your own skills as a developer. So we want to have a you know shout out and have a special uh, thank you to Level Up Financial Planning for sponsoring this episode. Planning your finances is something you can be doing right now to improve your situation. And you know I just want to point out that this is kind of one of those Pareto principle things, right? Like this is a fairly low effort thing that you could be doing right now to make your life better at a bigger scale. Um, and so I just, just want to give a shout out to uh, Lucas uh, because I think he's, I think he's doing good work. And I think this is something that uh, would be very valuable to the listeners. So uh, go check him out. Um, like I said, 20% effort for 80% of results uh, will get you a long way. So what do you have for us this week for tricks of the trade Beach? So guys, Communication with some people can be very frustrating. I mentioned earlier about spending an entire day talking with a few coworkers because they, you know, communication with them is just, it's, it's a pain sometimes. This is especially the case when there are barriers like language or time delays in response. I have learned with one of my coworkers using the word redundant causes her to completely ignore the entire statement. Like if I point out how code is redundant, I wonder sometimes if she understands the meaning of the word. She's not not like she's not a native English speaker. So she may not know the meaning of the word um, or may just choose to be like, all right, whatever. Maybe like, well, he says that all the time. Like Will says dumpster fire all the time. So yeah. Or understands it in a uh, engineering sense that redundant is good. And, And so like, I, I've learned if I say things like, oh, well, this this code or this piece of code is not necessary because it's already being done over here, that she'll pay attention to that and respond to it. Sometimes, though, you can be completely correct in what you're saying, like me using the word redundant, but still be a part of the problem because I, I had to recognize, hey, every time I use this word, that statement gets ignored. So if I stop using that one word and just use something else to say the exact same thing, hey, that problem went away. Yeah. (laughs) And I was the problem there. Right. You know, this can happen if you're using unfamiliar or overly pedantic terms with people who may already be struggling to understand what you're saying. Uh, Another time this happens a lot is when you're talking with non-technical people, like you're talking with project managers, uh, POs, business people, salespeople who may not know all the technical jargon that we use. And if you're using that, um, I try to avoid using it at all costs, but sometimes you just can't. Sometimes you have to. And when I do, uh, you know, I used to try and give context clues. Uh, I've even stopped doing that. I've just, you know, I'll say something and then I'll explain what it is. Use things like, hey, you may already know this, but you know, just in case or just so that we're on the same page, what I'm meaning when I say this is. When you have communication issues, take a step back 
and just take a moment and look at what you're saying or writing or, you know, however you're communicating and compare what you're actually putting out there with what you're trying to accomplish and go, Hey, what I'm saying is not accomplishing what I'm trying to accomplish. Why is that? What is going on in what I'm saying? You may even find that what you're saying is contrary to what you're trying to get done. Yep. And, uh, just pay attention to that. That's pretty much all I've got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.